Our scripture passage for this evening comes from the book of Judges chapter, or sorry, not Judges. I think I'm getting nostalgic. 1 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 to 17. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eliezer to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the Lord was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, Then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines had heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, Ebenezer. For he said, till now, the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Gath, from Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there. And there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this evening. Let's pray. Lord, we aren't so different from the Israelites. Would you help us to see ourselves in their sin? Help us to see the darkness of our own hearts in their stubbornness. And most importantly, help us to follow their faith and repentance in our own lives as well. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. When the book of Judges began, it was immediately following the death of Joshua, who was God's chosen prophet after Moses died. And the agenda that loomed over the entire book of Judges 
was this question. Now that Israel doesn't have Moses, now that Israel doesn't have Joshua, and since they also don't have a king, how are they going to fare? And how will they, will they fold and become like all the nations? Will they rise to the occasion and keep the covenant that God made with them? And what we saw in Judges was a 400-year-long cycle of constant, repeated cycle after cycle where the people would fall into sin. They'd be oppressed by a foreign nation around them. They would cry out for a rescuer. God would raise up a judge. He would save the people. He'd liberate them. And then they'd have rest for their enemies. And then they'd go right back to the same cycle of sinning, being oppressed, crying out, being rescued, and so on. And they never really did remove the people from the land like they were supposed to, which meant that they were always tempted by these foreign gods because they were always present. And so as a consequence, as the book progressed, we saw Israel descend further and further into sin. And by the end of the book, what has happened, they resemble more and more the Canaanites. And by the end, it's actually safer to be in Canaanite territory than to live in Israelite territory. Now, each time God would send these saviors to save them, and those saviors were the judges. There were 12 judges in the book of Judges, six major major judges, six minor judges, and an anti-judge Abimelech. And each of these judges was used by God in a special way to get rid of the enemies from around them. And with almost all of the judges, we saw that even God's judges still had the sins, and they still had flaws, of course. Now, why do I mention all that? Haven't we moved past Judges? Well, yes, we did. That was over a year ago now, believe it or not. But that's exactly why I want to remind you of this. Because you may have been under the impression that Samson was the last judge of Israel. If you remember, he died bringing down the temple around the enemies of God. And you may have been under the impression that that was the end of the judgeship in Israel. But tonight's passage is actually a massive reminder that actually Samuel is the last judge of Israel, not Samson. Tonight's passage contains all the narrative cues that we saw in Judges repeated once again. So what I want to suggest to you tonight is that in a sense we're stepping back into the time of the Judges one more time. One last time, God is going to once again rescue Israel from their surrounding enemies. He's going to do it without a king. Instead, he's going to do it through the leadership of Samuel, the last judge of Israel. And so that rescue tonight happens in three stages, contention, salvation, and cessation. Contention, salvation, and cessation. First tonight, we have contention. Um, The passage begins with trouble between Israel and the Philistines, but it's important for us to sort of get up to speed on the narrative because for the last couple of weeks, we sort of left Israel in the rearview mirror. It would be easy for us to sort of forget what came before, what's happened, what has really set the stage for tonight. But I want to remind you of this. Back in chapter 4, the Israelites were fighting the Philistines. They lost the battle at Aphek and In what they thought was a power move, they brought the ark from Shiloh to Aphek, thinking that they could use God like a magic genie. And the the message that God sent to Israel was a resounding rejection in the battle that followed. 30,000 Israelites fell in battle, 
And not only that, but you had Hophni and Phinehas died in the same battle, just like God told Eli they would die together. And the cherry on top of the sort of misery that's happening here, of course, is that the ark of God was taken. After a few months, the ark came back to them, entirely God's own doing, and it was being kept at Kiriath-Jerim. So the verse tonight, right before tonight's passage says, from the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years. So just think about this moment. Israel has suffered this incredible defeat. Two of its priests died. Eli has died. The ark is taken. It was eventually returned, but that point, but by that point, Israel was effectively very humbled. They were laid very low by the Philistines. So when our, when our passage tonight opens in verse 3, these 20 years have passed. Again, I would just note the cycle of the judges is the people often have a long wait before they cry out to God. Uh, think about this. When Cushan Rishathiam was oppressing the people, they suffered eight years before the people cried out. Um, when Eglon was oppressing Israel, they waited 18 years under his hand before they cried out. When King Jabin was oppressing them, it was 20 years before they cried out. And with Midian, the people suffered for seven years. And on and on it goes with all the judges. I could just list off all the judges and show you how long they suffer before they're willing to cry uncle in the presence of God. And so in our case tonight with the Philistines, how long is the wait? The wait is 20 years before they cry out to him. Now, later on in 1 Samuel, we learn about the things that the Philistines did to Israel. You start to to learn that there are all sorts of lasting effects to the things that that the Philistines did. Uh, For one thing, chapter 13 of 1 Samuel tells us that they couldn't find any blacksmiths in Israel. And the passage explains why they say the Philistines banned blacksmiths from the land so that the people couldn't make weapons for themselves so that they couldn't defend themselves. It, it was a weapons ban. They, they made a weapons ban in Israel, and it left them defenseless. They couldn't, they couldn't fight back anymore. They couldn't wage war. And so you had an unarmed populace, and of course, an unarmed populace is an anemic populace. It's a populace that can't speak for itself or stand up for itself. And another way the Philistines subjugated them was they kept forts in Israel's territory um, we will we'll also see this later. Um, you don't see it in the narrative tonight, of course, but you see it later on. Um, and they did this, of course, so they could keep watch on them, so they could maybe keep the people from organizing into groups, into militias. Um, but see, by this point, they've sort of become serfs of the Philistines, and the Philistines have become like the lords in the land. Verse 2 gives us a hint about what Samuel may have been doing all this time. The text says, A long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Uh, This is conjecture on my part, but I think it makes sense. I would suspect that Samuel, for Samuel, this was a time of prayer. This was a time of crying out to God and, and probably of urging the people to return to the Lord as well. But when our passage opens, the picture that's presented is one where the people are really truly in a bad way and they've suffered under Philistine rule in a major way. Now, what does this conflict they find themselves in teach us? In part, it shows us that sin and consequences are so predictable. Sin and consequences are so predictable. 
Um, Israel here is participating in a cycle that has been repeated for 400 years during the time of the judges. And here they were tolerating the Ashtaroth, tolerating the Baals for 20 solid years before they finally cry out. So by the time you're halfway through the book of Judges, you sort of get the impression that Israel is not a nation that learns its lessons very well. And, you know, it might be sort of laughable. We might almost want to chuckle. But, you know, we are not so different. We are not so different. I, I can't tell you how many people I know who have made shipwreck of their faith, wandered far from the Lord, and the list grows. The older I get, I know I'm not that old, but I'm still old enough to have seen many people make shipwreck of their faith, some mentors in the faith, some friends of mine from school, uh, some that I went to college with, and the list gets longer and longer. And you would think that with each of these failures, people that I know at least would look around themselves and they would take these at moments as warnings, and yet it seems that that is not always the case. Following your own heart, indulging in sin, will destroy you. We see it happening, we see it happening, and yet why won't we learn the lessons? Why won't we learn from it? Um, sin and its consequences are so predictable. I mean, I talk to pastors, other friends who are pastors, and you'll talk about counseling with, they'll talk about counseling somebody, and this person will say, you know, I've been thinking about this lady that I work with, and the pastor just screams at him, don't think about that anymore. You have got to run the other direction, and months later, what do you know? Exactly what you saw coming from a mile away. Those thoughts and ideas that were first entertained as a thought end up becoming the thing that destroys a family. Sin and its consequences are predictable. Oftentimes you can see it coming from very far away. I think that's actually what Proverbs 21.11 means. It says, when a scoffer is punished, the simple become wise. When a scoffer is punished, the simple become wise. In other words, a wise person learns from another person's mistakes. So Israel hasn't done that up to now. They, they have so many generations of mistakes, so many generations of sinful practices, sinful cycles and repetitions before them. It's such a predictable series of consequences, but they never learn. And of course, the consequence is 20 years of oppression and actually being disarmed by the Philistines. The Philistines are, the Israelites are in a deeply contentious Situation. It's one God intends to deliver them from. But notice this. He lets them get as deep and as helpless as they could possibly be before he steps in. Second tonight, though, we have salvation. You probably noticed Samuel was missing from the narrative for three whole chapters. For the last three chapters in the evening service, we've been looking at 1 Samuel. And there has been no sign of the man the book is named after. There's no sign of Samuel. From, he, he's gone in chapter 4, gone in chapter 5. And now here he is in chapter 7. Now he's back. He's older. He's more mature. He's ready to fulfill the task God has given to him. So immediately, the text introduces Samuel as calling the people back to God. Now, I know, I know that it's simple. It sounds so simple that it almost didn't occur to me to say this. But here is an application that I hope is sweet to you. You can always come back to God. You can always come back to God. The the prodigal son teaches us a lot of things, but one of the things this story Jesus told is that 
you can always come back to God. Even if you've wandered from him for a very long time, you can come back. If you have a child who's wandering far from the Lord, lean on promises like this. Because as long as there is breath in their lungs, they can always come back. Zechariah 1.3 gives us this promise. Return to me and I will return to you. So under Samuel, this is a change of direction. Now, Hophni and Phinehas had a plan. And their plan was bring the Lord to Israel with the ark. And Samuel's plan is, is bring Israel back to the Lord. So instead of bringing God to them, the plan is we need to go to him. We need to go where he is. So they saw God as a thing to be used. Hophni and Phinehas did. And Samuel sees the Lord as a king to kneel before. And that's what he's driving the people to at this point. Israel seems to be experiencing true, deep, lasting, godly grief. They seem to. 2 Corinthians 7.10 reminds us that godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. What's worldly grief? I'm sorry. What's worldly grief? Uh, I'm sorry if I offended you. (laughs) Uh, What's worldly grief? I'm sorry I got in trouble. Uh, What is true godly grief? What is the sort of godly grief that produces repentance? I was wrong and I did the wrong thing and I shouldn't have done it and I'm sorry. And I won't do it again. And I'm going to ask God to help me not to do it again. That's, That's godly grief. That's, that's repentance. Israel has had its share of, of worldly grief. You know, think about all the times in Judges where it says the people cried out to God in their pain, but only on a few occasions did the text actually tell us that they repented of their sin. And when they do repent of the sin, the text actually tells us of it. Usually, they just give a superficial lip service to God, but because he's so kind, he listens even to their shallow apologies. And he still comes to their rescue because he's so kind. It's, it's, it's one thing to be sorry for what your, your sins did. It's another thing to be sorry for your sin. It's an important question we have to ask, and it's a question for us to consider tonight. Do we have godly grief? Do we have godly sorrow? Or do we just have regret? Do we repent of our sins or do we just wish things had turned out differently? Those are very different things. Those are very different responses to sin. Are we heartbroken at the state of our soul that we would turn against God like that? Or do we just wish things weren't so messy now? Samuel tells the people they need to return to the Lord with all your heart. Direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. Do you see this here? There's a a demand made by God of the people. It's a demand he makes of us too. He demands all of us. He says, all of your heart, all of your heart. Direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. He's demanding holiness on our part. He's demanding devotion from us on our part as well. God demands all of us. Every aspect of us belongs to him. And God demands that we see it and that we live it out. That's the claim that he makes on your life and my life. He doesn't demand that he just be a partial entertainment. He doesn't demand that he just be a little luxury in our life. He demands to be the centerpiece of our lives. 
Repentance is more than just being sorry. It's, it's, it's more than just hating the consequences of our sin. Repentance involves hating the sin and showing you hate the sin by taking steps to flee from it. And that is something that Israel begins to do here. Um, you notice they put their repentance into action in a couple of ways. Verse 4. Verse 4 says, So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. So it has been a very long time since the Bible made a statement like this about Israel. In fact, the last time it said anything similar was during the ministry of the judges Tola and Jair. But even then, it, it didn't say they served him only. So this exact phrase is new. This is unprecedented, the way that it expresses their repentance of their sin. The people continuously cry out to the Lord in the narrative. They're asking God to save them from the Philistines. And then Samuel offers a whole burnt offering. And Samuel cries out too. And the text says, Yahweh answered him. Yahweh answered him. Now, here's what's so amazing. God's response is clear and divine. There's an attack that comes. The Philistines see the Israelites in this place. They have their watchtowers all over Israel. They've stripped them, stripped them of their weapons. And so they see Israel in this location here. Now, by the way, they probably didn't take away all of their weapons. What they did was they kept them from making any more. And so what the text says is the Philistines came into attack. They take advantage of the situation. But it says Yahweh thundered with a mighty sound. So think of what's happening here. The people are audibly crying out to God. They're audibly crying out to God. Samuel is crying out to God. The people are crying out to God. And then the text says Yahweh answered them. And how does he answer them? He answers them with thunder. He audibly responds just like they've been audibly crying out. It is almost impossible to imagine what it sounds like for Yahweh to thunder. I imagine that involves hearing loss, at least on the part of the Philistines. But, but remember this, even the, for the Philistines, this was a theological conflict. This is still their God versus the Israelites' God. So you can imagine in this moment, the thunder of Yahweh must have been absolutely terrifying. They dare to approach the Israelites while they're crying out to their God. Then they hear this thunder. You can imagine that thunder is the beginning of the end for them. And the Israelites rush out to finish off the confused Philistine troops. Now there's a little layer of beauty here also because I don't want you to forget Hannah. There Hannah was back at the beginning of the book. You remember all of this started with a simple woman who wants to have a child. And of course Samuel is given to her. And Hannah made a prediction in chapter 2 as she's praying to God. She's offering this prayer. She said this, The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. And so when God thunders in this passage, what is he doing? He is fulfilling what Hannah said God was going to do. And of course, God uses her own son to make it happen. Isn't that amazing? God uses that little boy who came from Hannah to make his mother's prophecy come true. So God God confuses them. He defeats them. It's a single-handed victory. 
And then to commemorate in a visible way what was done, Samuel takes a stone and he sets it up. It probably was not a small stone. We're not talking about a little rock sitting on top of another rock or something like that. This would have been what we would think of as a monument. It would have been visible. It would have been memorable. And here's what's especially interesting. He gives it a name. He calls the rock Ebenezer. Think about this. You have to rewind the clock back 20 years ago, Israel camped at Ebenezer, and that was when the ark was taken. Okay, that was a humiliating defeat that these people, the Israelites, have sat under for 20 years. And and the name Ebenezer means stone of help. So you can imagine how uh, Israel was camped at the stone of help, and they thought, surely this is going to be our victory, and instead the ark is taken. And their priests are killed. And they lose massive numbers of troops. And so when the ark was taken, you could almost imagine that name Ebenezer would almost be a mocking, bitter name. The stone of help. The stone of help. Some stone of help that was. But now, after all this time, Israel sees that stone of help very differently. Now they set up the stone And they give it the name that used to be shameful to them. They call the stone Ebenezer. This shameful thing has suddenly been transformed by all of the events in their lives into a beautiful thing. This is what Robert Bergen says. He says, all that was lost through sin in the first Ebenezer event was restored through repentance in the second. Now look, it's at this point I just cannot... I can't look at the Ebenezer stone here without thinking of the cross. Because the cross was something shameful. The cross was something dark. The the cross was something grim and terrible. But now what do we do, Christians? We put crosses on everything. Why is that? Because we've come to love the ugly and shameful thing because God in his grace transformed it. The same thing happens with Israel here. They set up the Ebenezer stone because they remember their defeat because now it's become their victory. God saved Israel and they commemorated it. Third tonight, God brings cessation. He brings rest. Another one of the common themes in the book of Judges was that when the judge was used by God to deliver Israel, there was this constant refrain, the land had rest. Sometimes the rest is short. Sometimes the rest is long. So think about this. After Othniel saved Israel, it said the land, land had rest 40 years. Then Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. Uh, when Ehud killed Eglon, the text says, and the land had rest for 80 years. Uh, you have the death of Sisera. After the death of Sisera, the text says, and the land had rest 40 years. And you can sort of follow this pattern again through all the judges. The, the point is the victory God wins for his people results in rest for the people and for the land. And he gives that victory free of charge, all from his own stores of grace. And we see that judge-like theme here tonight. When God delivers the people, the passage says in verse 13, the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. So just rest in this.
God gives them rest. Right? They never, ever give themselves peace. They've been trying to give themselves peace for 20 years. It's always when they stop fighting God and rest in his will that they find real rest and real peace. Christian, as long as you keep your eye firmly fixed on your own heart and your own abilities and your own power, you will always struggle to know the peace of God. And you will find yourself staring inside of yourself and wondering, why do I feel so anxious? Why don't I feel saved? Why does everything feel so wrong with me? Israel, as long as they did that, as long as they stared into their own hearts and looked for their own peace and looked for their own rest, never found it. And then as soon as they let themselves rest in their God, he delivers them and gives them real rest. So where is peace found? It's found by repenting and directing your heart to Christ. He will deliver you if you take hold of him by faith. In the end, God is gracious. He does does save Israel. And he doesn't save them because they're a great people. And he doesn't save them because they're a holy people. Um, Their obedience isn't the cause of their rescue. God is who rescues them. It's not their obedience that rescues them. Their repentance and their removing the idols only does one thing. It expresses the faith that has taken hold of God and the salvation that he gives. He refuses to rescue the unrepentant. As long as they are unrepentant, then he is unsaving. There could be nothing worse for you or for me than for God to give us good things when we are knee-deep in sin. It is truly the worst thing he could possibly give us. It is a great misery for us to treasure sin, to have our idols, and to have God give more of what we really want in that moment. Do you really imagine that Israel would have repented that they would have put away the Ashtoreth, that they would have put away the Baals if they were in peace during this whole season? If the Philistines left them alone and they were ruling themselves, do you really think they would have given those things up? No, they would have doubled down on what it seemed like was working for them. And what it shows us is that the suffering Israel went through under the Philistines was gracious. Right? Suffering in our sin, whether it feels like it or not, is a great mercy from God. He, he uses those circumstances. He uses them to humble us. He uses it to make us see our need. He uses it to turn us to him in our need and in our helplessness. And that's what he does for Israel tonight. Are you suffering the consequences of your sin? Thank God that he's being merciful to you then. Turn to him, repent. Even if you're a believer, this is not a message directed at unbelievers. If you are a believer who is in Christ, there is not a one of us who came into this place tonight with perfectly clean hands and a pure heart. Are you following the model of Israel? Are you trusting God's son? Are you repenting of those things that you do tolerate in your own life? Are you making war against them? Many Christians today, they want revival, but they want, they want it to look, the way they want revival is, looks all wrong. Right? Many of us, we, we think about revival the wrong way. We think that increased attendance is a sign of revival. That is, simply isn't the case. There are places that are filled to the brim that are not experiencing biblical revival. 
Maybe we think there's a, a political renaissance and we think, oh, well, that's a sign of revival, but it isn't. We might be tempted to look at all sorts of visible expressions and think that's revival. But biblical revival, true revival, only happens when it's accompanied by real repentance from sin and a turning from sin. Anything else just gets at the shallow things, the, the appearances. And, but God's word compels us to go as deep as the heart. And, and that's what happens here. God delivers the people in response to their repentance. And because of God's grace, they are saved. Now, I want you to notice one more thing here. You've got the repentance of the people. And it's certainly important. But we shouldn't miss this. Samuel makes a sacrifice. This is a victory that didn't happen without the shedding of the blood of the Lamb. The Lamb is a picture of Christ tonight, but Samuel is too. But what does Samuel do? With the blood of the Lamb, he took the very real repentance of the people and he presented the people before the Lord with the blood of the Lamb. There is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood, and there is no application of that blood without a priest. Samuel is a good priest, but he isn't a perfect priest. And we'll see that later in Samuel. When Samuel offers the sacrifice, he's giving us a picture of something better that's coming, someone better who is coming. He is picturing Jesus the perfect great high priest for us. Let's ask God to grant us the grace to take hold of Christ and not our own filthy works when we're presented with the reality of who we are and what we've done. Let's pray. Lord, would you teach us true repentance? In our own lives, make us people who put away our own idols who turn to your Son, and who rest in the deliverance that only you can give. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.